started doing Teach for America in mid-June 2003. It was still about two weeks before LeBron would even be drafted into the NBA. The previous summer, the Knicks had made the second round of the NBA playoffs, and I don't think they've been back to that round since then. Now, as of mid-June 2003, I think the only time I had been to Texas was a layover in the DFW airport. So I moved down there from the Northeast with a bunch of preconceived notions and no idea what I was in for in terms of teaching in the inner city. And one of the first kids, and we were all still kids at the time, like 22 or so, I met was named Dave. He was also from the General Northeast, a Knicks fan, etc. We became friends. About 17 summers later, as I'm recording this, we still talk periodically. So we taped this podcast and discussed a bunch of different stuff from fixing education to middle school basketball to the difference between living in Houston and living in New York City, which is not as big a difference as you might think. At the end, we talk about male friendships in your 30s a little bit, too. Dave actually still teaches and went from Houston back to NYC. I went from Houston back to Connecticut and New York City, but then back to Texas, and now I'm in the DFW area. Life is weird, and maybe this conversation underscores that a little bit. All right, let's get to it. What's interesting about it is that I think when we do go back to the actual quote-unquote normal school setting, I think this could change the way a lot of teaching is done in terms of if I can make a video, uh, if I can make a lecture on a video and the students uh-huh. can watch that, watch the sort of the flipped classroom model and they can watch that for homework and then come to school the next day and we can just start a discussion instead of me having to like deliver that lecture in person for 15 to 20 minutes and be interrupted by a bunch of different things. Right. I, I think we, we could trim a lot of sort of waste time right there and just get into some of the stuff that's more fun to do. So do you think like the biggest, because I know there's all these like virtue signal, like hot take people talking about all these changes to education coming out of this. Would you say you think like the most logical one is that maybe there'll be more flipped classroom models so that you can cut down on like wasted time. That's probably like the biggest thing that could come out of this directly. I, th- I think so. And I think it would just give the kids more time to to interact with the information, to practice and to build like positive discourse in the classroom, give right. them more time to write and then sort of defend some of if, you know, have like in-class debates or um, give them more time to get some of their ideas on paper and then discuss them instead of just taking notes from a lecture for 20 to 25 minutes. Because, I mean, there is a value maybe to doing that and hearing that live. But if I'm doing it on the video and they can just watch the video then come to class and we can not only will will cut back on wasted time because you know let's be real if you remember from from high school even from college probably maybe not not so much in college but there's often times where lectures are interrupted or disrupted for various reasons oh yeah um, often times. And, <laughs> yeah so we can get rid of that uh i think class will be more efficient and more fun so what do you think what's like the What's the reason that you think flipped hasn't been adopted more? You think it's just like teachers sometimes being lazy or not wanting to do the video front end or like having too much on their plate? 
Because that yeah, that flip was a cool model. I just never understood why it wasn't, like, adopted in more places. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember principals talking to me about that when I first started teaching high school almost 10 years ago. Um, and, yeah, I don't know why it never really caught on. I think part of the thing was flipped was often that you would expect the students to go home and, like, take notes from a textbook or read a document and then bring that back to class. And I think often what would happen in the classes that I taught is just it was hard to hold the kids accountable to actually do that reading right. or do that work. Whereas right. I guess if it's me making a video, maybe I have a little bit more. Maybe I think that it's more likely they're going to watch and take notes on a 10, 15 minute video than it would they would read like a 30 minute article. Right, for sure. And that's more like the the video thing is more like the content consumption or whatever you want to call it model of right now anyway, you know. So it's like yeah. I feel like maybe it's more natural to believe that a kid would go home and spend like 10 minutes with a video and then come with like some woke uh, shit that they could say in class as a result of it, you know, as opposed to yeah. reading at home, right? Right, and come to class uh, with a few questions, like you said, some sort of woke observation or some sort of, you know, profound observation, and then you, you bring that, you start off some some discourse in class, and then from there it just leads to people maybe being more engaged. Yeah, so... Okay, I think this is, like, interesting, too, because you've been doing it for a while, so I wanted your take on it. It's, like, um, a lot of people that have never been involved in public education will, like, try to kind of, like, make uh, assumptions or solve for the system or whatever, right? And obviously the system has a lot of, like, inefficiency and issue, and, like, I wouldn't sugarcoat any of that. But I always feel like it's shitty when somebody who, like, never set foot in a, like, public school classroom anywhere in the U.S. or even globally, like, tries to be like, well, this is all that needs to be done. Or, like, you know, a lot of times someone will be like, oh, just pay them more or whatever, which obviously would be nice. But so, like, as somebody that's done it for a while, there's no, like, easy, quote, unquote, fix to it. But, like, what... What are things that you, like, think would actually make more of a difference in terms of, like, um, just, like, having better, quote-unquote, outcomes, you know? Yeah, that's uh, a... I know. I'm sure it's, like, I'm sure... You don't have to have any other worldly answer to it, because I know people have been trying to fix this stuff for, like, 30 years or longer. Yeah, I was going to say, if I had had the best answers for that... uh, (laughs) I could, I could probably, some think tank would probably pay me, uh, hire me and pay me a lot of money to work for them. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting though. Like the, the, the issues that I think that, that plague schools today, I I think if someone wrote an article 50 years ago and he went back and looked at it, you would probably see a lot of the same things being written today. I I tell you one thing that's concerning to me is, Uh you know, we both, you know, we're in the same organization that's trying to close the achievement gap. Right. And I think that um, the some of the some of the what I've read about the trends in the last month in distance learning and remote learning is that like the achievement gap has been exacerbated. And oh yeah. In the sense that I read some stat that said that at Brooklyn Tech, 
they were talking about like 98% of the kids in one of the AP history classrooms were all like attending quote unquote, you know, virtual class and all getting their work turned in. Uh, and I was just wondering like to myself, is that happening at like the public school in Astoria that has, I don't know, 2000 or 3000 students that go there or like 98% of those kids like participating right. in their AP seminar on their discussion online about, it was like about financial, the way the article made it sound was like they were having some meaningful discussion about economic policy or about I don't right. know, financial literacy or something. Yeah. And I'm just not sure if that's happening at all of the schools in New York City, let alone across the country. And I think no, not at all. And so unfortunately, what's going to happen is the more affluent, better resource schools are going to like do pretty well on the AP exams, which are like the only the only thing that hasn't been canceled. New York State canceled its regions, the SATs are canceled, but the College Board is still giving online AP exams. Uh, and it's, it's it seems like the deck is set up right now for, for there to be a pretty big gap in outcome for, um, for, for, those, for those exams. Yeah. Well, see, I was going to ask you, like, um, I was going to ask you about, like, Houston, New York differences, because I can talk to some of that, too. But, like, what's crazy to me is, like, Okay, I think the term United States of America is kind of busted because, like, Topeka is very different than, like, Seattle. It's very different than New York, whatever. Even within New York City, like, parts of Brooklyn, parts of Queens are, like, super different culturally, right? Or, like, what you can do there. So I don't know if the word united is right. What I think is funny is that, like, maybe the most unifying aspect of America, besides, like, a bunch of partisan crap, is that... If you have kids, like, the whole model that most people go by is, like, okay, like, if you can't afford, like, private school or, like, some quote-unquote better option, then, like, figure out a way to get into a better neighborhood so that the school will be better. That's, like, the only model that, like, young parents understand. Like, Mm -hmm. I know so many people that don't even, like, understand, like, what a sixth grader should know, but they're like, okay, I have to find a way to afford a house like in this quadrant because that'll give my uh, kid a better outcome. Right. So it's almost like I've always felt like it's a cop out. Cause like we talk all the time about like education, value of education. And then like, ultimately people just like try to solve it with money. <laughs> it's like, instead of yeah. like, it just like, like, there's even very few like parents and grandparents who are caregivers. And like, we both saw this in Houston. Like I had like primary caregivers and like, they care about the kids or like the kid in their family, but they don't care about like making the school better. Right. So we use all these buzzwords about community or like the power of community, the power of education. But like, especially for white people, the way you solve these problems is like, Oh, get a nicer house. Right. And I always just feel like it's like, oh, it's like really hard to solve these macro level education type issues if the solution is always like, well, get a nicer house, (laughs) like move to a nicer neighborhood or whatever. Right. Or or Uh, get 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 a tutor. So for so you can do well in New York City on the test you take in eighth grade to get placed into, uh, you know, a Brooklyn Tech or Bronx Science or, or Stuyvesant. Did you. Did you uh, take that test? Yeah, so I took, I took, 
I think Stuyvesant had its own at that time, and I took that, and I think I did well, because I feel like I got into Stuyvesant, but then my mom is, like, uh, grew up in, like, Chappaqua in the 50s, and is, like, as a result, probably, like, low-grade racist, xenophobic type, you know? It's like, yeah. I, I kind of don't, um, this is going to sound terrible, but, like, older people who's like maybe their parents were in like world war ii or whatever i would never excuse like racism or xenophobia but it's like way more logical to me than like a 23 year old right now being like racist you know yeah (laughs) it's like they grew up in a different time so like my mom was like oh there's like too many asian kids there and I'm like, well, I mean, I think it's a good school and they're like smart kids, you know? She's like, no, nah, it's like too many Asian kids. And then I think Dalton in the, on the Upper East Side had a like its own exam when I was in eighth grade. And I passed that or like did well on that. But I grew up like literally two blocks from Dalton. And I just felt like if I had gone there for high school and had like, no friends or been hard to make friends. I would have like gone home all the time for like lunch and shit. So I was like, I need to get out of my comfort zone. So those were the two I remember taking when I was in eighth grade. I I know Bronx science like had an equivalent. Maybe you could use the Stuyvesant one for that, but I don't, I don't remember taking like a Bronx science specific one, but I do remember like eighth grade was a big, that's a big like tipping point year in New York city for sure. Um, and then like actually the sidebar to that, that's funny is I forget if it's still called this, but like it was I S E E or something maybe, um, when I was in eighth grade, which is like forever ago, but, um, okay. I was on varsity, uh, middle school basketball in eighth grade and I didn't start. I was like the ninth man. Right out of 12 and i remember there was one saturday in december we had a tournament and like all these kids on my team were taking like different entrance exams so we only had six and it was like a four game tournament on a saturday and i could <laughs> like none of us were like there was maybe one of those six kids that could play that was in good shape like good, very good physical shape in eighth grade so our coach was like, okay, well, we're screwed because if we advance a couple games into this, it's basically like you can, you only have one sub, right? So <laughs> I just remember, like, we won the first game, and we were all, like, exhausted, right? Because, like, basically we all had to play. I think there were 32-minute games, like, eight by four, and we were all, like, exhausted, whatever. And so, like – the second game, we played a public school, and this kid Omar Cook was on the team. He went to St. John's. St. Later. John's, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he played for like the Denver Nuggets, right? So I remember like he, we start this game, so we're all like tired. It's the second game in this tournament. We only have six guys, so we start this game, and like I swear to God, Omar Cook scored like twelve unanswered points it was like 12 to nothing right and uh-huh. we had we had like the one athletic kid on our team was guarding him and we took a timeout, and he was like dude i can't do this right like i can't i, I can't keep up with this kid <laughs> and so like our coach was like 
we basically like triple team this kid. And I just remember like, I think he honestly in 32 minutes, he had like 40 points. Right. <laughs> so, so like, I just remember I was guarding him in like doubles and triples in that game. And he would like go around me or like literally almost like through me so easily just with that like athleticism and ball handling um, that I was like, oh, God, like I can't compete with this either. So that's my other like tangential eighth grade testing story is we got yeah. like embarrassed by this kid that later played D1. Right. <laughs> um, and then I think we got put in a loser's bracket. And by like the fourth game, it was like none of us could breathe, you know, like I think <laughs> both. Because, like, both teams, by the fourth game, like, whoever we played, it was, like, the end of the loser's bracket. And it was, like, they had played three 32-minute games by that point, And they each had, like, depleted teams because of this uh, testing going on in the city. And it was, like, in 32 minutes, I feel like the final of that last game was, like, 10 to 7. Like, <laughs> nobody could score. There was no offense. All the dads yeah. that were there were like, this sucks. <laughs> like, why am I sitting through four of these games? Man? <laughs> um, yeah. So what? Okay. When you, um, when you did move back, um, I think like a lot of Northeast people and even Texas people don't understand this. Cause I get this question all the time in DFW. Like, I feel like people in Texas sometimes conceptualize like the Northeast or like something like if you say the word Queens to them, they just think it's like a different world. So like, mm -hmm. first of all, have did you experience that? And then second of all, like, what would you say like the similarities such as they exist and the differences are um, just because you spent a bunch of time down there, but obviously you have like, Northeastern New York State, New York City type route. So, like, where would you say the similarities and differences reside? You mean uh, from a work perspective? Yeah, work or like, uh, see, I wouldn't even think social is that different, but like work or like just like general culture, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of, so. Yeah, I think people have this idea, like, like you said, that Queens, you know, it's almost like there's two New York cities to people who don't live in New York City. There's Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yep. And then there's like everywhere else. And Queens is one of those places that's like everywhere else. And people will be like, oh, like how far away do you live from New York City? I'm like, I live in Astoria. I'm, I'm three I'm three subway stops away from 59th Street. Yeah. Like even, yeah. But even people who live in New York City in, in Manhattan will say that. Like, oh, yeah. all the way out there in Queens. Yeah, it's like, like it's three stops, what's, what's, man. What, what, what's yeah. wrong with you? I don't. Um, um, I don't. I don't know if you ever. Um, I don't know if you ever have tried this since you. Uh, since you've been back in Astoria, but like, I used to. Um, I don't think it's still open, but I haven't tried it in a while. There's a bar like, on, I want to say 59th between like first and second, or 60th between first and second. So it's like two or three blocks from the um from the train and i used to like if i was like out in manhattan and like the thing that i was at like subsided but i didn't want to like go back to queens oh like if i had somebody else to meet up with i would always send them there and then they'd be like oh man it's gonna take you like an hour to get home 
I'm like, no, it's going to take me like 10 minutes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, once, exactly. once I go get that train, I'll be home. I'll like be in my door in like 22 minutes, you know? Uh, and people like could never conceptualize that. They'd be like, oh man, you're like hours from home. I'm like, dude, it's literally like that bridge that you can see out of this bar. It's just yeah. on the other side of that bridge. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah, I don't know why Queens has has that, and, and the Bronx, I guess too. But I don't know why Queens has that, uh, you know, distinction as being this like far away, like other place compared to compared to Manhattan and Brooklyn. But um, yeah, you know, I'd say one thing that you know, living in Texas that I didn't quite appreciate at the time was that you have a little bit more autonomy of your own transportation. Yeah. Um, and, and I say that, now granted, Houston traffic is horrendous, right. but it's more convenient in the sense that it's like, I need to go to the grocery store or, and maybe this is, maybe if I lived in Manhattan, it would be different, but I need to go to the grocery store. Or I'm going to go to a friend's place. I'm going to get in a car and, you know, pretty much in 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to be there. I'm going to park. I'm going to go inside, put my stuff in the car and I'm going to leave. Yep. And I just felt like it was easier, maybe also because I was in my 20s and not my 30s. So you have a little more energy. But yeah. I just thought it was a little bit easier to, I don't know, to to go and, and and see more places within like the greater Houston area than it would be to do that in New York City. I'm not I'm not a big fan of the subway. Um, yeah. And it's, which is interesting because if, if, you know, back when, you know, you and I first met back in 2003, if you had asked me, I'd be like, I hate Houston. There's no subway. You have to drive everywhere. But after living there for a while, I don't know, you yeah. just sort of get used to the idea that uh, if you're going out at night, you're going to have to get an Uber. But there yeah. was, to me, there was something more convenient about about living there. There's like, uh, uh, there's like... The subway is like to what you said at first is like a hundred percent true. Is you don't really have any, you have like a vague sense of control, but you don't really have any control, right? I remember one time I had a friend in Williamsburg, and to go from like Astoria to Williamsburg, if you don't go through Manhattan, you can take like the G or whatever. You can go to you Long to Island take, City and take. You have to take like, the seven seven to the G. Yeah, it's a yeah. Yeah, it's a disaster, and, like, um, I just remember, like, I had to meet this kid in Williamsburg, and I was, like, looking at it, and I had never done it, and I'm, like, okay, I'll be there in, like, 30, 45 minutes, and I was there in, like, fucking two hours, right? <laughs> You're, like, oh, the G never comes, it was, like, a Saturday, like, the G yeah. doesn't come, and then, you like, you get off the G, and, like, I think I, like, didn't know shit about Williamsburg, so I was, like, there's like no control over it. Whereas if I did the equivalent like distance or neighborhood jump in Houston, um, again, like you said, it would take like 12 minutes, right? I'd be like, okay, I drove from A to B and I got out and I met my friend at this place or whatever, right? Yeah. And exactly. I'm on subways for like two hours to try to do that in New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that's, I, uh, that's something that I miss that I miss about Houston uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think like this didn't like dawn on me until like maybe later. Uh, like I've been here this time, like f- maybe five years. I don't think it dawned on me until like maybe the last like 12 to 18 months, but like, just like the way it's not even like a conservative liberal thing as much, although it can be, just the way people like conceptualize like 
jobs and like thinking about work and stuff is real different right like i feel like i don't know i just feel like in new york there's like a there are a lot of workaholics and shit no question but i feel like there's so many people that like your friend circle is likely to be people that like okay they have jobs and like they know income is important and maybe they're like passionate the elements of their job but like total like virtue signal workaholics and i feel like in texas you see more of that and maybe that is like a conservative work ethic type thing you know um but i don't know I've, that's like something i've noticed in the past like 18 months or maybe like more people i run into down here i feel like this and work is a means to end and, like, I want to get out and see, like, cool shit that New York has to offer. And then in Texas, So I think I lost you there for a second. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm here now. I hear uh, that part out. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean, though. Um I, I do think that there is a little bit of that, whereas like in, in to a certain extent in Texas, a lot of it became you work and then it's like, OK, you're going to go to a happy hour. But I think, right. you know, I think the more whereas in New York, there's more in a sense, there's more to do yeah. in terms yeah, yeah. of museums and cultural things. But then once I lived in Houston for a long time, I saw there was actually a lot of other um, there were a lot of museums or speaker events or concerts going on, I think. From, from when I first went to Houston in 2003 to when I left in 2016, the uh, amount that city had changed oh, yeah. uh, culturally was, you know, was immense. I also feel like this is kind of like your story, but not really. Okay, I have an ESPN friend, and he was in Connecticut with me for a while. He got laid off at one point. He ended up like, this is crazy, but he ended up getting a job with like Samsung that he like totally wasn't qualified for in San Francisco. He got through like four interviews and all his ESPN friends were like, who keeps giving this kid interviews? Like he had no background in the job. Right. So he got this job. They moved him to San Francisco. He literally got laid off in like 10 weeks from this job because his boss was like, oh, you don't know how to do any of this, which is just like a funny story about the interview process. OK, so he went to L.A. He was there for like two years. He got, uh, I don't know, furloughed or some shit from a job there. So he was like mostly doing TV production stuff. He got a job with the Rockets. Right. So he got moved to Houston and then he went from, like, the Rockets to Fox Sports. And, like, this is probably, like, 2013, 2014 initially. And he was sending me texts all the time, like, bitching about Houston. Like, oh, man. Because he's from, like, Delaware. But then he lived in New York for a while and Pittsburgh for a while. And he's like, I right, get out of Houston. I'm going to go back to, like, either, like, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or some shit. And so, again, it's, like, 2013. And, like, I don't talk to him that much, but he texted me, like, maybe two weeks ago. And I was like, you still in Houston? And he's like, oh, yeah, now I live in the woodlands. <laughs> I was like, dude, like, six years ago, seven years ago, you hated it. And now you're in, like, the, like, the woodlands is, like, 
Not, yeah. That's like that's like the hellacious version of Houston, right? Yeah, like you're not like, even in Metro, right? Uh, like I thought you were gonna say now he lives in Edo, East Downtown. He lives in yeah. like a new loft near the baseball stadium, and he likes yeah. all the bars and breweries that have opened up. Yeah, yeah God, if, uh, if you hate Wimbledon, if you hate Houston, the worst place to go would be the Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I was like, that's like the craziest shit about. He's probably like forty three. That's like the craziest shit about like I feel like north of thirty five. It's like when you're like twenty two, you have all these like conceptions about what your life will look like in like mid thirties, late thirties. And like some people get a bunch of them and have like some sick job and like they have married with three kids or whatever, some big ass house or like a loft in Edo or whatever. But then it's yeah. like there's so many dudes you meet in your life where it's like just like especially after 35 you're just like man like what the hell even happened along this path <laughs> like i wonder that shit all the time man i like um i had a uh, i had a phase like maybe last june yeah like june 2019 i was working this for this like agency job and like marketing ad agency job and I was doing like 25 hours a week so it wasn't full time or whatever but I had to go in there sometimes so I got like they laid like 12 of us off from it because of like revenue and I had like maybe a couple other like small contracts I was working on but I had like savings and shit so in the morning like I didn't have anywhere to report to so like in the morning I would run like six miles with these dudes in my neighborhood and they were like big, like ultra marathoners. So they would like kill me or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then like on like weekdays, I would like go drink with them after running like six to 10 miles. Like I'll just go drink with them at like noon. Right. And all these dudes are like 38, 45. Like there was one like early fifties and like some of them are like married I don't think any of them had kids or whatever, but like, it's like fucking crazy to listen to guys talk about like the, the arc of their life. And I'm sure women have the same, like, uh, I don't know, like narrative that gets weird, but like, I just feel like dudes get so misguided with stuff. And like, I always think like, I try not to like reflect on the past in a negative way, but I always think like, Man, if I like, if I went and found my 22 year old self and was like, this is what 39 looks like, I'd be like, oh, I did not think that was <laughs> going to be yeah. what it was, you know? Um, do you ever feel that way? Or do you ever like, <clears throat> not to yeah, like, go I... down rabbit holes about like fucking choices or whatever, but yeah. do you ever feel that way? Yeah, for sure. I, I think so. As you were telling that story about that running group, I, yeah. so I there's a, a group that I play pickup soccer with, and I usually only play on Saturdays because uh-huh. I work at I'm a teacher and I don't have weekdays right. off. But sometimes um, either it's in the summer or over winter break, I play in their like morning pickup games that start at 7:45. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And yeah, just it, it, I'm like, and I'll talk to some of them about the jobs they have. And, and what they do and how it is that they can play pickup soccer every morning from 7:45 to nine. And then like, yeah, it's got to go home and, uh, you know, t- do a few hours of work. And I think I might go playing another game later this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. 
what career yeah. or what industry is this that I can get into where I can work <laughs> for like four hours a day, go play soccer yeah. twice? Yeah. Uh, no, that's like I, I, I always and I feel like since I've been more freelance, you definitely have days like that. And then I used to go down, like, get tripped up on myself or go down rabbit holes where I'd be like, um, you talk to other people that are like contract, 1099, freelance, whatever. And they're like, oh, man, I work 80 hours every week. And I'd be like, dude, some weeks I work like 15 hours. Right. Like and then I'd feel guilty about it, you know. So um, I that that's like a whole nother thing where I do think especially guys, but women do it too. I think people lie about like how deeply committed they are to work just because it yeah. like feels like a good thing to say, you know, it's um, a badge of honor, right? It's a badge of honor. I feel like there are people that are deeply committed to work, but I think more people probably lie about it than we admit, you know, I think that's the one, like the, the, the steadying factor or the, the factor about teaching that is a, a check in the, in the positive column when it comes to like evaluating different professions is that, you know, when you're a teacher, you're going to have, depending on your school, a steady amount of hours that you have to work. Um, and part of the day is regimented in a sense that can be frustrating because like you don't have a lot of flexibility, um, within the day. Right. But like you pretty much know, you can fill out a schedule for the week and know exactly like at this time I'm going to be doing X and at this time I'm going to be doing why and then you have the summer off uh, do you ever think about that like as a teacher compared to what you do now it's like well from these hours i can't really go to the bathroom or i'm not gonna be able to go, like right. get a snack or like make a quick phone call but from these hours i have that time right I always wonder, like, in, in another profession where i had more time would i i I've, would i be able to get my shit together and <laughs> sort of like get stuff done because teaching right. creates its own schedule that you have to yeah. follow and that's like to your point, that's probably like one of the bit like the best like positive check boxes for it, right? Is that I think so. um, yeah, is that you can look at um, you can look at okay, like Wednesday one thirty. If I have this period, then like uh, unless there's like an in service or a, an assembly or a drill or whatever, like typically Wednesday at one thirty, I'm gonna be doing this type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And there's very few jobs like that. And the problem, especially with like white collar work is that you, it's so contingent on like the boss and structure that you have. Right. Because if you have like a shiny object urgency type boss, where like everything that crosses his or her desk is like now your problem or your priority, then it's like almost chaotic where like, you could never look at a Wednesday at 1.30 and be like, I'll be doing that. Because you might be doing nothing, but you might be, like, doing 27 different things, right? Um, so it's so contingent on, like, a boss. And, like, your experience as a teacher is contingent on other teachers and your principal and the, the students you get in a given year. That's true. But, like, I don't even think a principal holds that much power. Like, evaluative and like direction of the school sure but like just like day to day you kind of like know where you're gonna be and you know what you're supposed to be doing and that's like a lot better than a lot of jobs you can find yourself in you know and I think I took that for granted and as I've just you know I've I've been teaching for almost two decades now and um, I've always kind of just kicked the tires on uh, you know what would another profession look like what would another job look like and 
I think I take for granted the fact that teaching provides that inherent structure and there's less variability in terms of what a day, what each day looks like. Um, yeah. That being said, I do wonder, you know, is, is it a net positive you think for teaching that, that structure? Or, yeah. Or? Cause I mean, I would say every, every 24 months, like if not more, I consider going back to it just, and stability is like one of the biggest reasons, which is funny. Cause if you talk to like some dude making a bunch of money and like oil and gas or some shit, like they're going to probably think like education's not a stable option. Right. But it's like, no, it is stable. Cause you're always going to have schools. Like we were talking about at the beginning, the model might be different, but you're always going to have, the need to educate and just like the schedule is stable. Right. And I like, here's the other thing is you can get fired, laid off, furloughed, whatever from a school. I mean, that can totally happen, but a corporate role, there is no loyalty in a, in any (laughs) corporate sense. Whereas in a school, if you're, if you have a functional relationship with your principal and you don't rub, like your grade or subject team the wrong way, you're probably not going to get fired. Um, I mean, you could, but it's an outside chance. Like, you know, standard white collar job, man, you'd get fired in like in the next 10 minutes for like, Mm -hmm. just like, oh, they have a bad three months or whatever. Right. And they're like, oh, we don't have enough revenue to support these roles. So it's like, Uh, There's more stability in that sense, too. And I think, you know, people make this case, too. But I think it it is a purposeful job in the sense of like, look, you're going to have some shitty kids, like some bratty kids that aren't going to learn anything in the course of a year. Then you might have like their siblings later or whatever. I only was I only was Houston for two years and I had like a couple sibling sets just in two years. But like. Um, you know, like in general, you're like, you're doing things that are impactful at a broad level. Whereas like managing a spreadsheet or like sitting on zoom conference calls with people talking about stuff. I don't know if that's purposeful, you know? So I think that that's a point for teaching too, or a point for education too. And yet it seems like the going back you know, to something you were asking me earlier about um, you know, what are some of the the problems in schools? It's just not enough teachers. And there's right. been so many, so many things that have, that have been done over the years to uh, try to get more people teaching, including the program that got us into teaching. Yeah. But it seems like, like I don't know, I, I'm always, is there another profession other than teaching where people only do it for a short amount of time and then go on to something else. Like how many, right. how many doctors or how many right, maybe doctors right. isn't a great example because they have to go to med school for so long, but how right. many accountants, how right. many uh, journalists are just after five years, like, you know what, I'm just going to go do something else now. Yeah. But yet for no, teaching, right. it sounds like, like, why do you, I don't know. Why do you think that is? And I guess, um, I mean, I, I think like people, I do think people sometimes view it as transactional. Um, what I was going to ask you about is like the, the money side of it or whatever. Do you think that that's a, do you think that that's a valid argument? Like you hear Finland get brought up or whatever. Do you think that that's a valid argument? Like if we paid 
better if like kindergarten teachers were making low six figures do you think we would get yeah a higher quality of teacher or no um i don't know that's a good that's a good question uh there's a school in connecticut right now or maybe it's somewhere in new york this is this might be old information this might have been like back in 2010 they were doing this but they were paying Uh, their teachers starting at like 125k oh really uh yeah but i think there was a lot of the workload was was going to be substantially more than in other schools. Um, yeah, you know, you know, would more people stay in the profession if they were making the same than they were at like a law firm or right. at a you know a financial a financial firm or something? I guess I don't have I don't have the answer to that. Uh, I got in a okay. I got in a I got in a fight like this is probably a year ago or so. I got in a fight on Facebook with some dude in Philadelphia who was like a friend of one of my Facebook friends. And when like, it was when LeBron signed with the Lakers and I found like a meme about how much LeBron is going to make per minute of court time versus like what a LA um, unified school district uh, teacher with like 10 years experience makes. Right. And obviously, it's astronomically different. So I posted this meme, and this dude from Philadelphia, who I don't even know, we don't know each other, but like he just started going nuts on me, and he's like, you don't understand what value is. And I was like, what what do you mean? And he's like, well, um, he's like, LeBron is responsible for an ecosystem of like jerseys being sold and TV rights and like a sixth grade teacher isn't responsible for that. And I was like, okay, don't lecture me on fucking capitalism and how it works. Like I'm a, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm an intelligent person. I understand that. But like, there's also like, <clears throat> okay, I get the, the like ROI macroeconomic discussion, but there is also like a moral ethical discussion where like, okay, there are some major urban school districts where like at 10 years, you're still not clearing like 62, 64K a year, right? And it's like, oh, yeah. if you've put in 10 years and you're like still around like 50, $52,000, like there's just not like, there's enough shit that someone who's been teaching 10 years has in their life, like, they have friends, they have other commitments, they're probably in their 30s by then. Like, they're, they can't always maximize teaching as the priority in their life for, like, a not a huge salary for an urban area, yeah. right? So I think money would help in that regard, but there's no – without, like, investors, I don't know if there's a way to do it because the thing is, like, you could take – obviously you can take more tax money and pay teachers more, but then like, okay, so you got to pay like judges less or like the cops less or, and then people are going to go crazy. Right. Like, Oh, like we're prioritizing like teachers over the criminal justice system. Then you get all this virtue signaling about like kids that end up in the prison system and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if there's a way to do it logically but i do kind of think if we if we paid them better or even like 20 percent up 
relative to the ladder that we have now, it would probably make a difference. I don't think it would be the only difference, you know? Yeah, I wonder if that would get more people to stay uh, who have more institutional knowledge in the system right. and not have to bring in a new like cohort of of teachers every year uh, because a lot of the teachers who are already there in any system just left. Right. Um, and we're not <laughs> yeah. talking about people who we're not talking about people who are like leaving in their mid forties uh, or you know early fifties who are just sort of like retiring. I'm just like a lot of people who work for about five years in the system and then they. They just take off and they, yeah. they go want to go do something else. I, you know, another thing that's interesting is that in my years teaching, I haven't seen a good way of evaluating teachers. Oh, no, um, not at and all. like I've worked, I've worked in, I've seen different attempts. Houston ISD had like this performance pay, performance pay that was, you know, they tried to make it like it was some sort of comprehensive evaluation system that was based on a number of factors. But if you read between the lines, it was pretty easy to see that it was just based on like how your kids did on the Stanford test and on the uh, I don't even know if the Stanford test is still around or on the uh, on the tax test. Um, so they were basically giving you money if your kids performed well on these tests. And then, of course, later you hear there were cheating scandals. And it's like, well, yeah, right. no shit. Because, yeah, no doubt <laughs> you're creating like a perverse incentive model. Right. It's the same yeah. shit like I used to. Um, um, I used to drink with this guy who was like a lawyer for um, uh, like Lockheed Martin or some shit, right? And he said the fucking hardest part of his job was that um, he would get these sales guys and they would be like, hey, I got somebody from like uh, like Iran that wants to buy an F-35. And he'd be like, uh, yeah, we can't sell to Iran. And they'd be like, no, but they're willing to spend like a billion dollars. And then that guy's bonus is going to be insane, right? So the sales guy is like fighting with the lawyer. And the lawyer's like, uh, like we can't do it. And the sales guy's going crazy because it's like his incentive structure, right? And it's like, that's the thing. When you create perverse incentives, people are going to try to cheat the system. Like that's yeah. probably like economics 101, you know? It's like if yeah. you can make a better life for yourself, um, you're probably going to try to cheat the system. I don't think people are as moral as we kind of claim they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and then that just speaks of also to how pervasive testing has become in, in all schools, but especially in uh, charter schools or like TFA schools, schools that work in low-income areas. Um, and... I mean, I think on the one hand, you have to have a, a, a base level of testing, right? Just as a as an indicator, yeah. For for how for how students are doing, but it you know it gets to the point. You probably remember this from when you were working in Houston. Did, did your school do they make T-shirts for the tax tests and how? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had we had like motivational stuff for sure. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you this, you'll like you'll like this too. I feel like we might have texted about this when it happened, but. Uh, Probably like early 2016, um, my ex was working for like a foundation and part of what they um, funded or gave money to was education programs, right? So they did a lot with um, Laura Bush's uh, charity, so like George W. Bush's wife. So they got him to – they live in Dallas, I think, post-presidency. So they got him to come to a a elementary school – and like observe a couple of classes and then he did like a press event or whatever. And 
Okay, so I went to it just because I thought it'd be interesting. So the craziest shit was like some reporter um, asked him at the press event. And this is like a former U.S. president, like granted conservative dude, but like some reporter asked him like, okay, well, first of all, how many times have you been in underfunded public schools? And he's like, you know, not a lot. He obviously comes from uh, affluence, right? So he's like, not a lot. So this reporter's like, well, what's the, what's like the biggest um, thing that you observe that you were surprised by? And like, honestly, on the record, like you can find this interview probably on Google. He said like, okay, well, when I was governor of Texas, when I was president of the U.S., I heard about that idea of like school to prison pipeline. And I just thought it was like something that people made up to get worked up about. And he's like, but if you really like observe these schools, it's like the teachers are yelling at like second graders to like stay in a straight line. Well, it's like a seven-year-old maybe doesn't need that skill really, right? Yeah. And he's like, it kind of is like school to prison pipeline. So like that was the Trump-Clinton year. So like the media was like obviously very focused on that. So like his his comments got like some heat like – oh, former president says, like, elementary schools are prison pipeline. But, like, it faded away super fast because everybody was, like, focused on Trump and shit. But, like, I was like, God, this dude has been in, like, the highest levels of government and decision-making for, like, 30 years, and he's just now realizing that this is a potential problem, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, for over, right, yeah. Since the mid-'90s, he had been the governor of Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, like, this is a thing that, that we deal with where, like, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. I, I think, like, okay, this is probably too broad of a question, but... I think people get confused about what the point of education is because there's a camp that's like, oh, it's teach people to think. Then there's a camp that's like very results driven. That's like good test scores, make the school look good, make the kids feel accomplished. Then there's Mm -hmm. like a camp that's like, oh, it's babysitting for parents that have to work. And that camp does Mm -hmm. exist. Right. And then there's like there's all these like different viewpoints on it and i kind of feel like the oh it teaches people to think that's like almost too vague like it it should do that but there's no way to like measure that test scores really aren't a measurement of that do you have you ever thought about like what the broader point of like the whole system is supposed to be i mean i guess i'd say that it, it should be the first option that you said right you think about like what's the purpose of a liberal arts education like we right. you know we both went to liberal arts colleges right um it's like the the big i don't remember much about the specifics of like what i learned in every class there's a few classes that stand out but what i do remember is just trying to like get my shit together but also figure out a way to like learn how to learn better and learn how right. to study and get a lot of information. I think someone, uh, Victor, who we went to, um, I don't know if I can name drop on here, but yeah, you know, he was, he was in, T- he was in TFA with us. And he said something like, you, you got to learn how to learn. We were just, everyone was like spitballing in one of those sessions about like, about teaching. And we, you know, we had all just come from college and I guess that's what the, po- the point of a li- expose you to a lot of different perspectives and 
just helps you become a better critical thinker and a better writer. Uh, I remember talking to somebody from college who had graduated a few years before me and he had a job in business. And I was like, oh, weren't you a history major? He's like, yeah, well, I was a double major, but like uh, the, my business degree got me my job and my history degree is like what's helped me be successful at my job right. in the yeah, sense I've that heard like, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, whereas unfortunately today, and maybe just because, and it's not to say that we don't push critical thinking at the schools that I've worked at because we do, but testing just becomes so much of a focus. And I think because there's this competition going on amongst schools, whether it's amongst public and charter, just different public schools within a, a place. And the easiest way, the, the easiest indicator that you can use is what your test scores were. Right. Um, sure. And like the path of least resistance. Yeah. And I think for people then who want to donate money, that's the easiest way for them to see. It's like, well, I want to pick a winner. So this school has good scores. Now, and like, I think if you sort of like take a, if you dig deeper, so there's, there's some, there's some things that that data doesn't reflect. Right. Totally. Um, there's I a good, say... uh, no, go ahead. the, uh, yeah, the, the, the podcast, um, startup. Yeah. You know that one? And they did a whole yeah. series on Ava Moskowitz's school in New York City, Success Academy. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you like testing culture, it that that podcast, the, the way they portrayed what goes on at that school, at their elementary schools, I thought like perfectly represented testing school, uh, sort of the testing craze that's been going on in the last 20 years in uh, inner city schools in, in the U.S. Yeah, totally. I would say um, one thing... <clears throat> And then I'll ask you like a final question. But one thing I was going to say um, is like, I, I read this article once. I always think it's nuts where like in 2016, like one of the most shared articles on like all social platforms was this article claiming that like Pope Francis had endorsed uh, Trump for the presidency. And it was shared like, 80 million times on different platforms right and then you talk about like critical thinking it's like if you knew anything about like what a pope is like even very low level like what catholic religion is and i'm not even catholic but like you would know like okay this article is probably fake right and we see like so much shit every day now where i feel like people just like read a headline grab it and like tell their friends about it or, like, their take on some data. You see it with, like, coronavirus shit right now. Like, so that, I think, is, like, what the core argument for, like, well-rounded education is. Is, like, somebody should be able to look at a set of information and be like, okay, this is how to process that. Or, like, this probably isn't right. Or maybe I need more context for this. And it feels like that's in decline broadly. Maybe that's like a pessimistic attitude, but it does feel like that. I don't know if that's a hundred percent education's fault. I think it's like yeah. We well, have more I, and I will say though that too. I will say that I know history instruction and like at the school I currently work at, um, I think the the current curriculum is doing a good job of trying to get kids to be um, be skeptical of any source that they read. And um, to really try to contextualize, you still there, Ted? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, sorry. Uh, to really contextualize and, and look to see um, 
to look to see like what the author's purpose is on anything that's written. And I think that's a skill that's valuable because I, I guess, you know, one of the things I remember about one of my college history classes is this activity a professor would do where he would say like, is this source a good source? And then yeah. you would say a reason why it was. Then he'd say, oh, so it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. And then you'd say, well, no, it's biased because like it was written by someone from this place. And then he'd say, oh, so it's awful. You can't trust it. And then it, that, would, that would go on for like 20 minutes. Yeah, and he, yeah. he had like everybody trying to like find arguments for and against why this was a good source. And yeah. I think that that, uh, you know, to your point about being able to look at an article about Pope France endorsing Trump and being able to say, no, that's bogus. Right. And I think our like my school right now does a good job of trying to teach that skill to the high school students in our in our history department. And, uh, but the thing is, the thing is, you can't really you can't really test that on a, on a standardized test. Right. You, you can, but it's harder than if then it's right. easier to it's multiple choice questions. Yeah, it's easier to just like something that you can find within a paragraph or whatever, which like yeah. maybe maybe shows that you can critical think. But there's also like there's a million shortcuts. If you if you have like general intellect and aptitude, there's like a million ways to shortcut a standardized test, obviously, yeah. you know, like there's a million hacks for it or whatever. I was going to say on that source thing, too, that's funny, is uh, in 2008, I was at ESPN, and uh, what's it called? McCain picked uh, Sarah Palin as his running mate, and this, like, Game changer, that's a good movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good movie. This super high-up guy at ESPN sent us all this email, and this guy probably made, like, $500,000 a year, and he was like, hey... Sarah Palin was an athlete in Alaska in high school and stuff. We might be doing some ESPN features on her, but we want to make sure that everything is sourced uh, well. Like we want to use good sources on her background and stuff. Right. And then his next paragraph was like, Wikipedia is not a good source because it's like (laughs) communally edited. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And then like three hours later, he sent a follow-up email about Sarah Palin, and every link was from Wikipedia. <laughs> and we were all like, dude, like you just said in an email like three hours before, like, do not use this as a source because you don't know the accuracy of everything on it. And then he was like, sent this email back, and everything was Wikipedia. There were like there, do you remember like Great Alaska Shootout, that college hoops tournament in the 80s yeah. and 90s? There I think was that like still a, goes on. Yeah, my there was like a Wikipedia link to that, like 1987 <laughs> Great Alaska Shootout, and I was like, holy shit, man! Like it's like he so, it's like he typed in it's like he typed in Alaska sports. <laughs> yeah, he just took every Wikipedia link that came back. <laughs> from like Alaska sports history or whatever. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there was like an Iditarod link in that email too, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like hysterical. And I, it's like that people think sometimes like, Oh, guys that are like successful or run companies or like make a lot of money. Like they must be like real good about that type of stuff, like data and source accuracy. And a lot of times they're not either, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. They're just as bad as like some 10th grader that might sit in a class of yours someday, you know? So I always think that's interesting too. Um, all right. So last question I was going to ask you, and you don't have to have some kind of like otherworldly answer for it or whatever, but 
even like since you turned 30, obviously like, you know, you've changed geographic locations and stuff. What are, aside from geography, what are some of the bigger things you feel like you've realized or like conceptualized about adulthood or anything in the last like eight, nine years? Do you have any that jump out at you? Yeah, I think um, it's something, you know, from I've heard you talk a lot about on Twitter, but, um, you know, it's hard to make good friends with anybody after you're 30. Um, yep. So, like, a lot of my friends are people that I met in my 20s or people I know from high school. Um, and then I guess I noticed that it, when I moved to New York, I was in my mid-30s, and it's like, you don't really have like the institutional knowledge for lack of a better term until like of a group. So like, you can like go join and hang out with a group of friends and be like a peripheral member of that group. But, like you didn't know them when that, when that group formed. So um, right. I have, I have in my four or five years, I have a lot of friends from growing up who live in the city, mm-hmm. but I have very few like good friends who I've met in the last, uh, in the last five years, just because I think it's hard to, you know, yeah. when, when you're, people already have families and I think friendships yeah. are more formed uh, during during your 20s. The other thing yeah. I mentioned is just the value of being able to, like, stay healthy and exercise. Um, you know, when you can do it a lot when you're a teenager in your 20s, I feel like you don't quite appreciate uh, that yet you can do that. And then later when you're in your 30s, like even in these few weeks off, like I wish I could go out and go running every day, but I literally I have a bad back and like literally right. I can't go running. I can't go outside and go running every day. Like, uh, but when I was in my 20s, I probably could. And but I wouldn't at that time, you know, because I was I don't know, I was drinking or I wanted <laughs> right. to go and like play uh, video games or something. So I wasn't going to go out and do that. Uh, and I think as you get older, uh, you start to see that, well, like when I have these times to exercise and I'm feeling good, I want to make sure I go out and do that because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to like go play soccer or like go for a run.